Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I have to confess, there's a, there's a certain style of, of sermon, a certain style of preaching that I'm not a huge fan of, which is where we see whatever topics are trending at the moment, whatever people are talking about, and then attempt somehow to uh, take some Bible verses and direct them towards that. Uh, probably with the best of intentions, worrying that church doesn't seem relevant to real life, we seek to, to shape the teaching of the church so that it speaks to whatever the issues of the day are. Uh, the reason I'm not a big fan of this is because we've been doing it for a long time, and it seems like we still need this fundamental help in bringing Scripture to bear on the issues of the day. In other words, this doesn't seem to help us develop that skill. Also, I think it's not the right way to develop that skill. If we want to be Christians who are able to bring the teaching of Scripture to bear on the issues of our day, what's important isn't the issues of our day, what's important is the teaching of Scripture and understanding that more deeply and understanding uh, the, the doctrines of our faith, which is why I think it's important, despite the, the winds of the moment, to immerse ourselves in the teaching of Scripture deeply so that we can let God speak to us regardless of whatever the, uh, the, the trends of the moment happen to be. The reason I bring that up is because this morning, as, as we begin a new series on uh, Hebrews chapters 10 and 11, the title of this series, taken from chapter 11, is Desiring a Better Country. And I'm conscious of the fact that we've just had, two weeks ago, the Republican National Convention, and then last week, or I guess, yeah, the week that just ended, the, the Democratic National Convention, and that when we talk about desiring a better country, it's natural to assume that we're talking about a better political order. Uh, what we're talking about is actually something more than that, but of course it touches on that and on much else. Rather than trying to avoid the, the events of the day, I actually want to address those things head on. Just ask you a question after the last two weeks. The question is, are you disillusioned with politics yet? Are you? And if the answer is yes, then I'm going to say good. It's about time. It's about time that you be disillusioned with politics. Because as the psalmist says, some trust in horses and in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's where our hope is placed. But if you go back and, and look at that statement and see the larger context of it, there's actually something more that I think it's important for us to keep in mind. That, that line comes from Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 through 8. Now listen to these words. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. It's not just that some people put their trust in other things, but we happen to put our trust in God. We put our trust in God, who is the only one able to deliver on the promises that he makes. 
It's not just that we put our trust in God because we happen to be Christians and we want to be good religious people. We put our trust in the name of the Lord for very practical reasons, namely that only the Lord can deliver. I asked if you're disillusioned with politics yet, and I should point out that the problem isn't politics. The problem is illusions. The illusions that we have about politics are similar to the illusions that we have about so many things. We have the illusion that they have the power to deliver us, that they have the power to save us, that those things have the power to fix the world. And we look around and we say the world needs fixing. And so we look to these things to do that work, and they can't. Things that can in themselves be good. I mean, we need good government. We need politics. We need people who are willing to do it. The problem isn't that. The problem is when we look to that with a sort of messianic hope, believing that it's going to answer all of our needs. So through this political season, there's a question that God is asking. There's a question that he's asking each one of you, and the question is, where is your hope? Where is your hope? And we're answering him indirectly, mainly through social media. Right? The things that we say, the things that we publish out into the world during this season answer the question, where does your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? You find out what it is that you're really longing for, what it is that you really desire, when those desires are thwarted, or when there's a the threat that they will be thwarted. You find out what you really care about when it looks like you're not going to get it. For a lot of us right now, that's how we feel. That's the way the world looks. And so suddenly we're revealing something that we wouldn't have revealed in different circumstances. We're showing where our hope is, what we're relying on for deliverance. You know, it's, it's great when we come to church and, and for a couple of hours we spend time together and we're very focused on the things of God and, and, and you can draw close to people deeper in community over this shared bond that you have of being in Christ. The problem is that we're also in community when we leave here, right? We also know one another outside this room and, and have access to one another's views, uh, more access than we've ever had before. Uh, because of the aforementioned social media. Uh, if you're a Jane Austen fan like I am, you probably remember Mr. Bennett, the, uh, the father from Pride and Prejudice, who was sanctified over time by having so many daughters to raise. And his philosophy of life is summed up in this line of his. He says, For what do we live but to make sport for our neighbors and laugh at them in our turn? And I think Mr. Bennett would have done well on Twitter. Because it seems to me that this is what we do. This is how we live, right? We reveal so much about ourselves. We discover so much about ourselves. And usually, you know, it, it can be interesting, right? You find out, oh, this guy that I know from church, it turns out he's interested in, in all these interesting things that I never suspected. But this is the time of year when you discover the things about the people you worship with that you wish you didn't have to know, right? Because you assume that you're in a room full of people who believe all the same things that you believe, people who are sane in a world full of craziness. And now you have the opportunity to discover that the crazies are in the room with you. Right? The crazies are worshiping with you. 
God has called you into community with the crazies to love them. And that should give you pause, right? That should teach you something. The thing that brings us together is where our hope really ought to be. It's not always where we place it. It's where it should be. We desire a better country. We are people who desire a better country, and this isn't that country, and it never will be. This isn't that place. Now, when you look around the world, when you look at at society and you look at what's wrong with society, it's easy to desire a better country. You think, oh, I wish things were better. We really need things to be better. But when I say that we desire a better country, I don't mean that we're just so pessimistic about the world that we see that we wish we had a better one. We desire a better country, not just out of a sense of, of despair and frustration. We desire a better country out of a sense of joy, believing that the country to come is good, that that what is to come is better than what we see around us now. Christ calls us to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, but it's hard to rejoice when you look around and you see so much injustice in the world. So many people doing things they shouldn't be allowed to do, And getting away with it, how do you rejoice when you see that going on? How do you rejoice when you look around and you see all the suffering in the world? If you can see the way that people suffer, you know, we're insulated where we live somewhat from some of this suffering. Lori and I spent the summer on the West Coast and, and, and got to see a lot of things we don't normally see in Sioux Falls, but people suffering right out in the open. And and I'll tell you, when I witnessed these things, the thing I did not feel was joy. And yet, we are called to have joy. It feels like now that all of our effort should be put into justice. All of our effort should be put into service. And yet, we're called to see those things through that lens of a joy that is already and not yet. I was listening recently to an interview uh, with the theologian uh, Scott McKnight, who recently wrote a book about heaven. He was talking about this book because he's, uh, it's interesting, his his work is pretty popular with younger Christians, but the topic of heaven is not popular with younger Christians because there's sort of a, a reaction against it. The perception is that in the past, Christians were too focused on on the next life, and it led us to blind ourselves to the realities of this life. We're too otherworldly. And as a result, we tend to err in the opposite direction now, right? where everything is focused on this life. And to talk about the next life, the life to come, almost feels uh, Pollyanna-ish. But Scott McKnight says the reason that he wrote his book on the life to come was that he is convinced this is the missing focus that the church needs to recover that it's necessary if we want to live this life the way we ought to in Christ, to see this life through the lens of the life to come. To see the suffering and injustice of this life through the lens of the joy to come. Not that it makes us indifferent to this life, but it changes the way we live and react to this life because our hope is not on solutions in this life. Our hope is in good things to come. We need that balance. 
who want to feel the joy that we're called to, in other words, then we must have hope in good things to come. And the good news for us is that our text in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18, gives us good reason to have that hope. This text gives us good reason to put our hope in good things to come. So let's take a look at our text. This is Hebrews 10. I want to start by looking at the first nine verses. You're going to see the author of Hebrews essentially reiterating a point that he's made already about how what Christ has brought is better than what people had before. So the sacrificial system that they had in the Old Testament, that has been done away with now. Christ has replaced it, and that's a good thing because the old system was inadequate. So here are the words of the author of Hebrews. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now he's quoting from Psalm 40, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So now having quoted the psalm, the author of Hebrews is going to analyze it a little bit. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order, first, sorry, in order to establish the second. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. You can have hope that good things will come because the best thing already has. You can have hope in good things to come because the best thing has already come. The best thing being the cross of Jesus Christ. The law, the era of law, it was a shadow. It foreshadowed good things to come. It could not actually deliver on the things that it promised. The sacrifices that it made to atone for sin had to be done over and over again because they couldn't atone for sin. There was a consciousness of their weakness built into the system. If you showed up at the temple for this annual day of atonement when the sacrifice was made, you couldn't help but remember that we did the same thing last year and we did it the year before and the year before and we keep doing it over and over again which suggests that these sacrifices are ineffectual. They don't actually do the thing that we need them to do. That's the reality that was a shadow, a foreshadowing. It, it, it projected what was soon to come. What was soon to come was Christ's atoning sacrifice. And we see that there was a longing behind those sacrifices. But the people who gathered together in the temple 
they longed for something. They longed, using the words of, of that first sentence, for verse 1, uh, they longed to be made perfect. Those who drew near, drew near so that they could be made perfect. They could be made whole. Their sins could be forgiven. That was the longing that brought them there. But they were also conscious because of the reminder of sin built into the sacrifices that they weren't getting the thing that they longed for. They went through the process. They enacted the sacrificial rituals. They observed all the things that they were meant to observe out of a desire to be made perfect, to be made whole, to be forgiven for their sins. And they knew they'd have to do it again this time next year. Over and over again. They weren't getting the thing that they had come to the temple to get. Because through the means that they were using, it was, according to verse 4, impossible. It was impossible to be perfected by these sacrifices. Does that sound at all familiar to you? I mean, are you a person who desires something, who longs deeply for something in life, and knows that, that the means you have of pursuing it are impossible of delivering it? Like, we do want the world to be fixed. We do want the broken world to be made whole. We want ourselves to be made whole. And we long for this. And we come here every week. And it never happens. Right? You never leave this place perfected. You never leave this place not needing to come back to this place. There is something in, in our lives as Christians that mirrors the expectations of those who went before us. Like we can go back and we can relate that the way that they lived and the way that they looked forward, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. It's interesting, though, when you look at their example and you look at the way that they lived and the way that they worshipped, the inadequacy of this life, the inadequacy of what they had, did not lead them to despair because they had hope in good things to come. Despite the reminder of sins that they received every time the sacrifice was made, they looked forward to something better. Their faith, their trust, was not in the sacrifices that they saw with their eyes. Their trust and their faith, as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, that faith was in the future sacrifice of Jesus Christ that at that time had not yet been made. That was the object of their faith. They had faith. They had hope in good things to come. It's interesting. The author of Hebrews quotes another psalm for us, and he does with this psalm what he's done before. He attributes it to Christ. He says if you go back to Psalm 40, it turns out Psalm 40, these are the words of Christ speaking. This is Christ coming into the world saying these things. And what he says has to do with sacrifice. Jesus says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. So he speaks about his own incarnation, the idea that the word would be made flesh, and he speaks about it in the same breath in which he speaks about those earlier sacrifices. Because those sacrifices you did not delight in, you did not desire, but you prepared a body for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus here is speaking of his ministry, of his purpose, of his mission specifically as atonement. 
He has come to make the sacrifice. But all the other sacrifices were just foreshadowing. God's desire. We've spoken about our own desires, our own longings. God's desire, we're told, God's pleasure was not in those sacrifices. God's desire and God's pleasure was in Christ instead. He calls us to find our pleasure and our desire in Christ. With the best thing to come, the best thing to come that has already come is the body of Christ. That the Word took on flesh and dwelled among us, that it became possible for Him to offer Himself up as a living sacrifice to atone for our sins, the incarnation, the atonement. This is the best thing ever for fallen humanity. It is the best thing ever for a world snared by the consequences of sin. It's already been done. Christ had a desire as well. Talk about our desire. We talked about God's desire. The desire of Christ was to do your will. Christ desired to do the will of the Father. Follow the will of the Father. And that will becomes important. Understanding what the will of the Father was that the Son desired to fulfill. But before we dig into that, I just want to say these words. There's a lesson for us here. If you look at the shift between that era of law to the era of gospel, what took place as the promise of grace was revealed more and more, what happened was a new order being established. A new dispensation, so to speak, where it had been administered, the promise that administered by the law, suddenly now it is administered by the gospel. We see everything differently than they saw it before. In other words, they hoped for good things to come in the future. They saw the inadequacy of the world around them, of their own observance. But when the good thing came, it changed everything. It established a new order after which it was impossible to go back. It was pointless to go back. I mean, this is, is the reason why the author of Hebrews takes up his, his quill and, and writes on his papyrus because what he's seeing in the church is people who have entered into the gospel wanting to go back to the law, to go back to that old way which has now been superseded forever. But they wanted to go to these lesser inadequate sacrifices when they had Christ instead. What we have to see is if we are filled with longing and those longings are unfulfilled, if our desires seem unfulfilled and seem impossible to fulfill in this world, we can still have hope in good things to come because we've seen evidence of God delivering in the past on the good things that He has promised. When we look back on this, we can have confidence that our own hopes really will be fulfilled, just as theirs were. You can have hope that good things will come because the best thing already has come. But you can also have hope that good things will come because this is God's work, not ours. What we're depending on is God and the will of God, not on ourselves. Look at the next verse. This is verse 10. This is at the end of the paragraph that we've just been working through. So you find it uh, 
This is right at the end of that uh, first paragraph on the second page of your order of worship. That final sentence. He's quoted already from the psalm, Christ's words, Behold, I have come to do your will. And then that final sentence, he says, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Christ says, I've come to do your will. The author of Hebrews says, let's talk about that will and what that will was. What the will was that Jesus had come to fulfill was that we would be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Christ's sacrifice is a sacrifice that's made once for all. It's not necessary for him or anyone else to make atonement after that work of atonement on the cross. Everything was done right then. Like every sin that was ever forgiven or ever will be forgiven is forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ. No further work, no further blood need be shed. It's interesting, though, that, that when we think about that, we tend to think about it in terms of justification. Right? That, that what Christ has done at the cross, this, this justifies us. This makes us uh, legally not accountable for the consequences or the penalties of our sins. But you'll notice here that the, the term that's used, the verse doesn't say, and by that will we have been justified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. It says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, when we talk in, in systematic theology about those two ideas, justification and sanctification, right, sanctification is the thing that we understand as, as what happens after justification. Right? I'm justified. I, I, I accept Christ. I'm forensically righteous before the eyes of God. And now I live my life in Christ, and the Holy Spirit over time sanctifies me. In other words, uh, makes me more holy. Sanctification is just a fancy Latinate term for uh, holification, which doesn't sound as good in English, but to be made holy over time. So we understand that sanctification as a process. Here, uh, this idea of holiness isn't quite the same. Uh, sometimes the word that's translated here as sanctified will be translated as consecrated as a result of this. That it's not so much, what's in view here is not so much progressive sanctification, that process taking place over time, but the idea of us being made holy by his blood, set apart by his blood as, as a covenant community. We have been saved by his blood in the fullest sense. It's not just that Jesus came to do the work of justification so that the, the main hurdle would be overcome so that all that would be left for you to do is the easy stuff. At the cross, Jesus did it all. All of your salvation from start to finish, all of the work necessary for that has been undertaken by God. It is his work. It is not your work. It doesn't rely on you to accomplish it. Uh, William Lane, uh, who wrote a commentary on Hebrews, when he gets to Hebrews 10, verse 10, this sentence that we're looking at, he calls it a compact formulation that may be confessional in nature. In other words, this is one of those instances where it seems like the author is drawing a familiar sentence from the worship of the early church and the Christians of, of that day. 
It's as if he's quoting a, a line from a liturgy that they may have used in their own worship. And that when they were accustomed to talking about their salvation and encapsulating it, they would say these words, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This statement, uh, in this statement, the essential factors in Christian salvation are reviewed from a communal perspective. The ultimate cause of salvation is the will of God. Its determinative event was the offering of the body of Jesus Christ at his crucifixion. The result was the definitive consecration of the redeemed community to the service of God. All of salvation is the work of God. It's why when we talk about redemption, we talk about redemption, uh, this is kind of to make it easier to remember, but we talk about redemption as being ordained by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit. So we see there's a Trinitarian view of the work of salvation that you see all of the persons of the Trinity active in your salvation. That is by the will of God before the foundation of the world that salvation has been ordained so that we can see that if it is happening in us, if we know his love and, and love him in return, we can know that that is a process that goes back not to the moment that I made the decision, though I did make the decision, but back to before the foundation of the world. And if I can know that about my salvation, I can also know, looking forward, that he who has begun this work in me will continue it until that day of completion, that, that if I have been foreknown, if I have been predestined, if I have been justified, I will be sanctified and I will be glorified. This insistence on God's work in all of salvation is something revealed to us to give us comfort that our salvation does not depend on the vicissitudes of the moment, does not depend on our sincerity, does not depend upon our skill or talent or worthiness or merit or any of those things. But it depends on God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that if we ever have doubt, if we ever question whether or not it is real, we ought to look to Him and not ourselves. We ought to look to the cross of Jesus Christ because we can have hope that good things will come because this is God's work and not ours. It is uh, kind of a one-two punch of confidence in a way. Like we're, we're being given confidence here, but given confidence in a couple of directions. So, so one direction is definitely that, that God has done it. God has already done so much, we can trust him to keep doing things. Like if he's already delivered, then he will deliver in the future, that sort of thing. The other side of it is that God has done so much. It is God who is doing it. It is not us. If God is the one who is doing it, then we can have confidence. Look, if good things to come were our work, they'd never come. This is the story that we see enacted in the world all around us. Right? All of our schemes at fixing the world, all of our schemes at fixing our lives have failed. You think about all of the great political schemes for the transformation of human society, all of the utopias that we were going to build, all of the things that we were going to do, all of those projects at transformation are shipwrecks. None of them have panned out. 
Now, if you're sitting in the room and you're you're a diehard Marxist, you probably want to tell me, oh, the reason Marxism didn't work is it hasn't really been implemented the way it should have been. And if you are a diehard capitalist, you probably want to tell me that the only reason that capitalism isn't, isn't doing everything perfectly is because it just hasn't been properly implemented. And I would say, hey, maybe you have a point, but the, the failure to be able to properly implement your plan is a failure. And it is built into all of our plans. It's the nature of our schemes that we cannot fully implement them. You know how many human plans for transformation we've been able to get all of humanity on board with? The number is zero. None of them have panned out. And I'm willing to concede that even the ones that I think are terrible started from a good place. There were plans that were trying to do something good. The problem is they didn't have the power to do what they promised. They didn't have the power to fix the things that they wanted to fix, even though they needed fixing. And more often than not, they made things worse, not better. That's not the way God is. When we do things, they don't work out. When he does them, we can have confidence that they will succeed. God, through Christ, will not just restore all things, but he will do it once and for all. In the same way that the sacrifice of Christ, when it came, after being anticipated for a long time, fixed things once and for all. It fixed our salvation once and for all. There was no need for more. When God comes, when Christ comes again, when the good things we hope for actually appear, things will change once and for all. And all of our failures, all of our schemes, all of our shadows, will make his triumph all the more glorious. Because through our failures, we will have seen that we couldn't do it. Our hope was in the wrong place. That only he could deliver. So don't long for other solutions. Don't long for other saviors and other sacrifices. If you're in Christ, then put your hope in good things to come when Jesus you can have hope that good things will come because this is God's work, not ours. You can have hope that good things will come because just like you, Jesus is waiting. Jesus is waiting. Pick up with our text. Author of Hebrews is going to say some things here that are pretty amazing. He's going to quote again, not from the Psalms, but from Jeremiah 31, the promise of the new covenant that he's already alluded to in Hebrews 8 and now is reiterating. These are the words he speaks. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering 
for sin. Jesus is waiting. Jesus is waiting. We're told that Jesus, when he made his sacrifice, he did it once and for all, and then he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Whenever you confess the Apostles' Creed, like you are, are basically plotting the location of Jesus, like his GPS coordinates, if you could imagine such a thing. Where is Jesus right now? Like Jesus still is embodied. Jesus still has flesh, and he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession for us, and also waiting. Waiting. What is he waiting on? Well, it turns out, just like we've had promises made to us, Jesus has made promises made to him too. He is waiting on the fulfillment of those promises. In our text, it says, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And that should be a familiar promise to you because that comes from Psalm 110, verse 1 which already the author of Hebrews has, has cited to us. Right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus' enemies are going to be brought low. They're going to make, be made to submit to him, be made a footstool for his feet. Now, that may sound like a really aggressive thing. Like Jesus is, has been promised world domination. But it's a good thing when you consider who some of those enemies are. So gathered here in this room. Another way of, of seeing this promise is the way that it's phrased in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's been promised to Jesus. That's what Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for, for the fulfillment of that promise. So when we see the author of Hebrews quoting Jeremiah 31, that is the promise of the new covenant to us. Right? That is the, the first revelation of the age that we now live in living in that fulfilled covenant of grace. And in that covenant, as he points out, forgiveness is promised. Because as Jeremiah is talking about the new covenant that will be made, I will put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds. That's Jeremiah 31, 33. In verse 34, he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In other words, forgiveness. Forgiveness is promised as part of that covenant which is good news for us. That's good news for us. But that promise also promises dominion to Jesus Christ. That he will rule and reign over all things. That is good news for us as well. And good news for him. The strength of the covenant of grace lies in the fact that it's not just a promise between God and humanity. I'm not saying have confidence in God's promises because God always keeps his promises. Uh, God has come down to us as human beings. He's condescended. He's entered into covenant with us. And we should have confidence that he's actually going to do 
what he's promised us he will do. All of that is true, but there's actually like more reason for hope than that. Because God has not just made promises to us, God has made promises to himself. The Father promises the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This will be done. God will do this. Sit at my right hand until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is going to happen. God will not break his promise to you. God will certainly not break his promise to himself. So we say, when we look at the world, hurry up, God. We're waiting. How long are we going to have to wait on you? Seems like we've been waiting a really long time, God. It's time to, 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 to get busy. Do the things that you've promised. If you're feeling more pious, you might just say, even so, come quickly. But the thing is, you're not the only one waiting. You're not the only one waiting. You're not even the most important one who's waiting. Right? Jesus is waiting too. Jesus is waiting for every knee to bow. But Jesus is waiting on something else as well. Jesus is waiting patiently for all that the Father has given him to come to him. John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what Jesus is waiting for. And Jesus is going to get what he's waiting for. You can have hope that good things will come because Jesus is waiting too. Jesus is going to make sure that all the promises are kept. We have good reason to have hope in good things to come. And maybe there's also reason for things not being so good in the here and now. But sometimes we need things now not to be good so that we can fix our hope on good things to come. There's a a line that is attributed to uh, the Civil War General Robert E. Lee, who said, it is well that war is so terrible, otherwise we would grow too fond of it. I think that's a revealing thing to say about yourself. You know, that you led armies in battle, saw people mangled and killed and, and ultimately lost and yet you were in danger of loving this if it weren't so terrible. And I think it, it speaks not just to the nature of war, but to the human condition. There were a lot of things that we would love, even though we know we shouldn't, if they weren't so terrible. It's only the injustice of it all. It's only the suffering of it all that keeps us from loving them above all else. Right, the injustice and the suffering that we see in the world, they don't just put like a, a burden in our hearts to fix them, but they also wake us up when we've grown too fond of the world. And we sing this world is not my home, but we're like, 
happy to live here as long as necessary. Things are good. Things are going well. I, I could live this way forever. And then I see things are not going well. And it wakes me up. And there was a moment this summer, Lori and I, as we were traveling on the West Coast, uh, for a whole week in, in San Diego, we had a bedroom whose window opened onto the Pacific Ocean. So that when you woke up in the morning, all you could see was the Pacific Ocean. And it wasn't painting, it was the real Pacific Ocean, right, with boats that moved over the horizon and all of that. And as I, I sat in that room and I looked out at that view, you know, I, I have to confess that the thought of coming back here didn't seem so urgent to me. Like, I was willing, like, one day this will end. One day I will return to Sioux Falls, but, but it doesn't need to be anytime soon. And then I found myself in the Pacific Northwest, staying in university dorm rooms where there was one bathroom, like, per floor. And as I shared restrooms with all these other guys, none of whom were as fastidious as me, um, I said, even so, come end of summer. Suddenly, my desire to be back with you grew and grew. And, and although I hated living in those conditions, there was a part of me that looked and said, you know, there's something good in this because I'm not meant to stay here. I meant to want to move on. Now, I don't say this to try to justify injustice or, or justify suffering and say, you know, oh, don't worry about those things any more than Jesus when he said the poor you will have with you always was saying, oh, so you're not on the hook anymore for, for serving those who, who need it. But what I am saying is that in these things that ought not to be and will not be when he comes again, we can see a value, a lesson that we can learn, which is to wake up, not be so comfortable here, not be so content with the idea of our hope being in this world in this light, in these solutions. So the question that God asks us in this season is the same as the question he asks us in every season. It is the question, where is your hope? Where is your hope? And if you are honest with him and with yourself, you know that it is not where it ought to be. And you can see that because when those hopes are frustrated, suddenly you reveal where your true hopes lay. So where is your hope? If you're despairing right now, if you're angry and resentful with what's going on in the world around you, your hope is not in Christ. And if you're satisfied with how things are going, your hope is not in Christ. This is not how we're meant to live. We're meant to be uncomfortable in this life. Our hope is meant to be fixed on Christ and the good things to come. If you've never put your hope in Christ, if you've never done that, if you've never bent your knee to him and confessed that Jesus is Lord, then to put your hope in Christ, you must do that. And it means turning your back on other saviors, other sacrifices, other solutions, and looking to him instead. You must have faith the good things to come in Christ. And if you do have that faith, if you are in Christ, but your hopes stray, and you're looking to other solutions and other saviors and, and hoping that, that, that the answer might be Jesus then and other things now, then 
the message is the same for you. You need to turn back to your first love. You need to go back to putting your hope in Christ, to have faith in good things to come in Christ. The answer to all of our questions, to all of our doubts, to all of our frustrations is always the same, predictably the same, monotonously the same, gloriously the same. And that answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. If your hope is in good things to come, then your hope is in the return of the Savior who came into this world bore the burdens for our sin, brought forgiveness into this world, and promised that He would come again to finish the work that He had started. And it is in that Savior that all our hope is placed. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.